0: When I look back now, I feel like I failed those kids because I don't think that they were equipped with lasting skills that were gonna be that useful to them. They're equipped with skills that they could execute that one time in the exam. And I feel like that was less than learning. I basically set off on this quest. What is it that kids should be learning today if they're gonna succeed in this unpredictable future that we all talk about? And secondly, how is it that kids best learn?
1: Welcome to the Lessons Outside the Classroom podcast. I'm your host, John Anno, and this is the place where I interview experts and professionals about a range of topics related to the development of soft skills in children. You'll also get practical tips and advice on how you can help your child develop these skills. If you have any specific topics you'd like covered, please email on lessonsoutside at gmail.com. Today, I'm talking to Alex Beard. Alex has worked in education for over 10 years now. He's the senior director at Teach For All, a global organisation working to ensure all children have the opportunity to fulfil their potential. He's also the author of Natural Born Learners, which takes readers on a global tour of the future of learning. In our discussion, we talk about the influence of technology on learning. We talk about the skills our children will need for the 21st century. And we also hear about some of the techniques that Alex has witnessed on his travels and how these can be applied. Um, so I'm really pleased to have with me today, um, Alex Beard. Alex, thank you for, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, Alex has worked in education for, for over a decade now. Um, he's also the Senior Director at Teach for All. That's right. Um, he's also the author of Natural Born Learners, which, which I guess takes readers on, on a global tour of the future of education. Um, so Alex, thank you very much for, for joining me today.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Good. Um, Would you mind just um, giving our listeners a bit of a a background, a potted history about you? I know you spent some time in education, teaching, kind of how you've got to to where you are and kind of, I guess, where you've you've got that fire from a viewpoint of of education.
0: So I started out my career in education about 10 years ago uh, as a teacher in a secondary school um, just off the Old Kent Road in South London. And my career began with a bit of a baptism of fire so I had these groups of teenagers who knew very little about Shakespeare I was supposed to be teaching them English and I as a teacher knew very little about teaching and I came into it having gone to a lovely primary school in the countryside where I grew up in Warwickshire and then to a secondary school that was a boarding school and it even had its own pack of beagles and so I thought that teaching was just a question of standing in front of the classroom and talking about ideas like I'd seen Robin Williams do in Dead Poet Society. But this school was a long way from the movie. So all of the kids came from these two big states, the Haygate and the Aylesbury. At the time, were known for their high levels of crime. And all the kids came to school a long way behind where they ought to have been in their reading and writing. So some years behind, about two-thirds of them spoke English as a second language. So they had challenges. And I realised that although they faced this difficult starting point, that was different to the peers that I'd had a, a, at this private school that I went to. They were fundamentally no different. They had the same dream, the same ability, the same creativity, the same spark, the same parents that wanted the best for them. But I felt like the school that I was working in wasn't giving them what they needed, nor was society. And I felt like the model was really old fashioned. So I was aware that around me as I was teaching, the world was changing really fast The kids were using smartphones, they were playing Call of Duty all night. But I thought the methods I was learning to use might have been familiar to Socrates two and a half thousand years ago, you know, back in the Agora. And yeah, I could see that the world was changing around us. We now had all these new bits of technology, our smartphones, AI was emerging, the internet was getting big. We were beginning to use big data. We were also beginning to learn stuff about the mind. So, neuroscience was telling us how the brain works, psychology was telling us how we behaved, early childhood insights were showing how babies grew. And we were also beginning to learn some stuff about teaching as well. So, this idea that teaching is a craft and a practice that you can get better at over time. And yet, I didn't really feel like any of these things were being applied in the school where I was teaching. Maybe they were, but by only a small handful of people. And so, I basically set off on this quest. What is it that kids should be learning today if they're going to succeed in this unpredictable future that we all talk about? And secondly, how is it that kids best learn? And how do we create education systems that set that up? I saw off on this global tour um, that took me across six continents to meet with trailblazing teachers and visit groundbreaking schools um, and to speak to the people at the cutting edge of about science and technology. Um, and that's sort of what became my book, Natural Born Learners, which does tell this story. Um, hopefully, I'm, I'm still a bit hopeful about the future of learning. Um, but that's what set me off, off on that journey initially.
1: Brilliant. Um, you mentioned learning. So maybe a silly question, but how would you define learning? That's
0: not a silly question at all. I think learning is something that's very difficult to define. And we all have different understandings of what it means. So personally, I've thought about two different types of learning. And one of them I like, one of them I don't like. So when I think about learning, you can think about anything that causes a behavioural change in someone. But that, for me, is too loose a definition because you can achieve a behavioural change in someone through a process of conditioning, which is the famous, you know, um, B.F. Skinner experiments with the rats at Harvard in 1936 that gave us uh, this idea of behaviourism. So, you know, he kind of created this chamber and then he would give rats a little lever they could press and get pellets as a reward. Um, And he discovered that, If you varied the rewards, so the rats didn't know when there would be something in there or there wouldn't be something in there, they would get addicted and their behaviour would change. they become compulsive about pressing this lever to see if they could get a little reward from the thing. And so essentially he was conditioning their behaviour. They had no agency in that setting. Their behaviour was changing, but I don't like that as a definition of learning. So what I think is, I would define learning as a behavioural change that you want to undertake or that positively benefits you. So there's some idea that you as a learner have agency in that process and it's adding to the quality of your life. It's adding to your ability to make your own decisions. It's adding to your own agency. And that's the kind of learning that I think we ideally are trying to aspire to in our schools. You're equipping people with the knowledge and skills that's useful in the world today. You're giving them the habits and motivations to be able to find their own purpose, set their own course in life. And you're also helping them to understand how to interact in a healthy way with people around them. So learning is a vast mm. field. But I think it's that element of control um, and agency that seems most important to me. So I distinguish between what I call, I call on the one hand, conditioning, which is behaviour change you're not in charge of. But on the other hand, learning, which is a behavior change that you have some agency over.
1: So looking at this definition of change that you have some control over, to what extent do you think that the the school system now facilitates learning Mm -hmm. in that matter?
0: So I think that everybody in the education system has a similar aspiration for kids. And I think that everybody aspires for all kids, if possible, to be critical thinkers, to be able to operate creatively, to be able to work with others, to live healthy, happy, successful lives. And yet I think that some of the practices that have gripped our education system don't necessarily contribute towards that goal that I think everybody probably shares. And so what you see in lots of schools, um, let me just talk about the school that, that I taught in. So as a teacher, I found myself pushed by the education system to focus on helping the kids that I taught to get good GCSE grades. So helping them to master the basics with that C grade in mind. And most of these kids were started out on, um, on lower grades than that, so they were kind of predicted Ds and Es, but we sort of figured out how to game the GCSE system, looked at the mark schemes, invested in extra English classes, invested in careful training and exam technique, and you helped the kids think through their coursework, gave them the tricks. And in that way, we basically helped to get them all Cs or, or better at their GCSE exam. And that C was really important for them because it would help them to get onto the next stage of education. But at the same time, when I look back now, I feel like I failed those kids because I don't think that they were equipped with lasting skills that were going to be that useful to them. They're equipped with skills that they could execute that one time in the exam. And I feel like that was less than learning. And then, you know, we also get to learn things that they weren't that interested in. They didn't see the purpose of, of the learning often. Now, there were some amazing light bulb moments where it really came together. But in general, I think there is a degree of conditioning that goes on in systems. But I do think actually that everybody working within them wants to create students with agency choices, self-control, it's a question of whether some of our incentives in the system allow that or not.
1: So what skills do you think our children will need um, for the 21st century? And, and how, I guess, how fit for purpose do you think our system is currently? Because you mentioned something about critical thinking, creativity. Mm. What are the, those key skills that you think need to be taught to our children or need to be imbued yeah. in our kids? It's a big question.
0: First of all, it seems like every child needs a foundation of core knowledge and skills. So one of the things that we're learning about the brain is that higher-order thinking skills like creativity and critical thinking depend on us being able to do simple stuff quite automatically with our brains. And so there's this idea of, of cognitive load that essentially our working memory only has the capacity for holding maybe seven concepts or bits of information in our head at any one time and so what you need to do when you're learning is get a bunch of stuff into your long-term memory and when it gets into your long-term memory you can basically draw in it automatically and it doesn't count anymore it's one of those seven items that you can hold right. in your working memory and so in order to do that high of order stuff you need to sort of like drill and memorize and practice and repeat you know your maths your spellings, the way that language fits together, like how you learn to speak, some maybe historical information, some cultural information, because you need to be able to draw on that in the moment of thought. You know, put that information on the stage along with the stuff that you're seeing in your environment and mix it together in interesting ways. And so, what I think the problem is right now is that I I believe that we can do that stuff. You know, by the time kids are twelve or thirteen, if we set our systems up right, and we don't have to do it in a joyless authoritarian way I think we could have a lot of fun doing that as well some of it you just have to you know learn and memorize and that's okay it's good to learn to to practice to apply yourself and to concentrate but let's imagine that stuff gets done so let's put that to one side that's what schools are already trying to do I think they can do it much more quickly and more efficiently than they are doing so far so what's the stuff on top of that that kids need to succeed in the world today so I think you could about it, maybe one way you can talk about it is in terms of literacies. It's ever more important that kids are emotionally literate. So if you believe that machines are going to take over jobs and we're going to have to find our own ways of living and do our own things, develop our own meaning, collaborate with one another in new ways, confront problems of climate change, um, confront things like growing numbers of people living in the world and like having to live closer and closer together with one another. And I think we're going to need this great emotional intelligence. Um, So that's going to be vitally important. That helps us to collaborate and empathise and connect with others. Um, That will help us build a healthy society. So I think emotional intelligence is going to be big. Then I think there's a sort of new media literacy that I think is really important. So in the past where we used to suffer in education from a lack of access... information and knowledge. Information and knowledge was scarce. You had people that would in medieval times travel across continents to visit the one library where there was the one book so they could read that book and learn about that thing. Now we suffer from the opposite problem which is an overabundance of knowledge and information. There's absolutely screeds of things that that are pushed out there into the world every day. So today I think we need a new kind of literacy which allows us to identify the knowledge that's useful to identify the knowledge that we want to have access to rather than the knowledge that somebody wants to push on us. We need to be able to distinguish between sources that might have have an advertising angle versus an educational angle between fake news and real news. And I think that we don't yet know how to develop these skills. So education actually is not, as it currently stands, is not necessarily a protection against, for example, falling into the fake news. So a big study with Stanford University graduates, where they found that they were not very good at distinguishing between advertorial content and news content. And so I think we need to teach young people to understand these things, to understand how new media works, to understand when a source is trustworthy or not. So that's a kind of new media literacy. And I think connected to that is a, I want to call it a data literacy of some kind, And the data literacy is all about understanding how computers and AI and algorithms work. And I think that we don't. And that creates a huge power differential between the companies that are creating these things and running them and us, the citizens who are living in the world, which is defined by them. Very few of us know how Facebook works or how YouTube algorithms decide what content we get to watch after we've watched a video we've just watched. And... I think we should because then we sort of understand how our behaviors are being, how we're being conditioned. Then a tech literacy as well, to some extent, I think we need to understand how our machines work, what they're doing, how we can use them creatively to our own purpose. When I look at, you know, my smartphone or whatever, at the moment it's quite a passive experience for me. I click on the things, I follow it, you know, I'm not really understanding what it's doing or how it's working. So I think that's important too. And then the last one, which I think is massive, um, is, uh, ecological or environmental literacy. Like it seems so obvious now to more and more people that the way that we live and the systems that we set up are not sustainable on the planet that we're living on. And, you know, you learn a tiny bit about climate change at school, but I really think that students who are in schools today should have the opportunity to sort of deeply understand the nature of the ecological crisis that we face and for that to infuse all aspects of the curriculum so at the moment you learn about it whatever for a bit in geography and a bit in science maybe but I think you know, when you're learning about the invention of the steam engine or you're learning about the invention of you know, the use of coal power I think that should all come with this coda of like and, and like this was a great invention but it had this you know big um, negative effect on the environment and once it all added up it became unsustainable so I think this should be deeply embedded and it should involve getting out into nature and understanding and connecting with with, with plants and the environment. So I think those, those new literacies, I think, will be really important. And that's on top of the classic 21st century skills. Kids should be critical thinkers. Kids should be creative. They should learn to work together with one another well, that we talk about often.
1: Mm. What do you think parents can start to do to really start to to help their kids along. You, know, you mentioned these three critical skills, critical thinking, yeah. complex communications, and creativity. Yeah. But, but yeah, the role of parents and the ever-increasing importance of their role in education.
0: Well, it's a really interesting one. You know, I think the greatest thing that parents can do for their kids is to, I believe, give them a love of learning and give, and give them an ability to reflect on what, they're, what they are learning, to think hard about it. And I think that that's easier said than done. That was going to be our next question. <laughs> How can yeah. you start to No, no, I mean, that? this is really good. So I spent some time, this might sound like a weird place to go, but at Eton College during the research for the book. I didn't write about it in the end. And one of the things that they do there, so in the first term when all of the boys arrive at Eton, uh, age 13, they put them through this programme where essentially they have a taster of every different club, activity or society that they could potentially get involved in at Eton. Whether it's, you know, Greek society or it's getting into the theatre or it's politics society or it's science or it's classes, whatever it might be, everybody tastes everything. And I think there's like a really important insight there because a lot of those kids then go on to find their passion in one of those fields and develop it in the school, maybe even as a career long term. So I think one of the things that we should be doing And by the way, this is backed up with the research. So there was this famous um, psychologist, he's called Ben Bloom, and he is the original guy that set out to study creative genius. And he looked at 120 people that were outstanding in their fields. And the fields were diverse things like neuroscience, sculpture, mathematics, music, swimming, I think was one of them. And he gave us this whole idea about how 10,000 hours of practice, if it's good practice will result in you becoming an expert in something and that's this, that's the finding that we know about he had another finding in his research and that was that before any of these young creative geniuses that he'd studied actually dedicated their lives to these fields he identified what he called a romance stage that they experienced at the beginning when they were young and they discovered this pastime and they fell in love with it they just loved it and This beginning stage for them was characterized by experimentation and play and joy. And so they connected with their field before they then put in all the hard work and practice. And there's a big insight here. So I think the thing is, as a parent, I would be looking to help my kids to have an experience of as many different things as I could to help them to find the one that they loved or the one or two things that they loved. And then... I would help them to invest in doing that, just for its own sake, because then you learn what it means to learn, to love something, to be self-motivated, to invest in a thing. But I'd also help them to think about what it means to, you know, to learn to get better at that, so that you learn about learning. So I think you can have something that you're passionately interested in, which you just do for pure enjoyment's sake, like you might play computer games or you might be into football, or you might do pictures. But then what does it mean to help? a son or a daughter, to think about how they get better at that, um, to think about what it means to excel at that thing in a way that's you know gently encouraging. Then I, think you, then I think that helps somebody to learn about learning. And then that's where the reflection comes in, to help them to understand how it is that they're getting better at that, to give them some perspective on it. Because I think that can be applied then to other fields. And with all of it, I think love of learning is so... It, ca- it captures so many different ideas. I think it's also really important to be able to fail without it feeling like the end of the world. I like, think that's something that kids really struggle with in our current system. Like when you're working for exams or there's a mark scheme, you feel like there's a right or wrong. And I think not being able to fail is at the enemy of, of learning. Like, you need to get you need to be okay with it as early as possible and stay okay with it for as long as possible. Like, that's how you become a good learner. You know, everybody, whether it's Picasso or Einstein or whoever you want to quote, it's like getting better at something is about the nine failures that result in the one good draft that actually be- comes off, whether it's an experiment you do again and again, or it's a picture you try and draft and redraft. Um, learning and improvement results from getting stuff wrong
1: along the way. That's interesting. And I guess one of the lessons for parents is to start yeah. to accept that. Because I guess there's a bit of a contradiction there. We're in a system which is highly measured. yeah. So as I said, Sats, mm. GCSEs, which is about pass, yeah. which is about fail. But at the same time, we need to accept that, you know what, failure is part of the process so i guess if i'm kind of extrapolating one of the the key points for parents is to really embrace that you don't have to be the best you don't have to get the top marks i guess it's all about as long as you're improving yeah that's a start point
0: well that does that speaks a bit to the to the classic idea that's more common in societies that are based on that confucian model of education so you know Famously, Carol Dweck argues in Growth Mindset that in the West, we tend to have this idea that talent is innate in us, that you are born gifted in a certain field. You're a born artist or you're a born musician or a born mathematician, which, of course, is Coswell, basically. Uh, Whereas in a Confucian society, so in China, the belief is that success and ability is the result of hard work um, and so whereas we see it through this lens like you either are or you aren't good at that thing and that, that kids feel that all the time I'm not good at maths I'm not good at drawing I'm not good at in China it's like you're not working hard enough you need to work harder to improve at that thing you can improve you just need to work at it so I think that that growth mindset is quite an interesting idea and I think that we would do well to embrace it but I don't even think we need to be obsessed about it but I think that if we can praise our kids, not for their talents, but for their efforts, that makes, a, that makes a big difference. And if we can also, within praising our kids, also identify the areas that they could go next, or they get to identify the areas to go next for themselves, you don't ever want to get to this sense that you're complacent and things just work out for you because you're somehow great at doing them innately. And I think, so from my own personal experience, so I always... In primary school, um, I think because my mum read to me a lot when I was, before I went there, I always found primary school work relatively easy. I was a strong reader, did well at the beginning of school. And I think I internalised personally unhelpful lessons there that essentially I didn't have to work that hard to do well. I didn't have to set my own goals. Somebody would give me things to do and I would do them. And those things don't stand you in good stead in the real world where you have to figure out what it is you want to do, where you do have to work hard if you want to succeed and, and achieve. And so I think that, yeah, we need to reject this idea of innate talent. Innate talent. Don't praise talent, you praise effort. Um, and that's connected to all these ideas of failure. You know, somebody's worked hard at something, but it doesn't seem good by our standards. If they worked hard, that's the important thing, because then they'll get better at it next time. And there's all sorts of amazing statistics. Like, so, you know, for example, um, Kids with the same grades have been to state schools versus private schools. The kids with the same grades from state schools tend to do better at universities. So they've had to work that bit harder to get those grades. So it's more of an indicator of their ability to do well in the long term, to put in the work that they need to do. Whereas if you've kind of been cruising along a bit like I did as a student, <laughs> then you don't necessarily have the attitudes that are going to take you on
1: to the next bit. Oh, brilliant. Uh, really interesting. <laughs> I mean, You mentioned your book. we we'll, we'll slightly kind of... Move to another subject in terms of technology. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned there I mean, in your book, there's a lot around technology and and how it's used in education. Um, Can you talk about this and how technology can be used to facilitate education versus be there just for the sake of it?
0: Yeah. So I went down the coast from Rocketship Schools to a place called High Tech High in San Diego. And there I saw kids learning to use tech in that way. So at High Tech High they split learning into two different blocks. One is fairly traditional English, math, science type classes. That's about half the time. And the other half of the time is spent on these big term-long interdisciplinary projects that they do. And so I saw this happening in one class, which was like a sort of futuristic design lab. And I saw a single group of students, a class of 25, they were 17 years old, and they'd split themselves up into three groups. One group was experimenting with making biodegradable seed pods. Another group was scripting and planning the production of a documentary. And a third group had built their own drones completely from scratch. And this class was gonna end at the end of term by taking a five day excursion into the California wilderness. They were gonna fly these drones with cameras mounted on them over a national park to see where plant species had been degraded due to drought. They were gonna replenish the missing species using their biodegradable seed pods. And then this documentary crew was gonna film the whole thing, make a movie of it and put it on YouTube to raise awareness of environmental issues. And this seemed to me an example of kids learning to use tech creatively, entrepreneurially, and to improve the society that they were in. And it gave me hope that although we see every day how our smartphones, you know, risk making us stupid, taking over our lives, dominating our attention, that they could also be harness machines to help make us smarter. And one of the teachers at High Tech High put it really nicely. She said that we shouldn't be asking what technology can do for us but what we can do with technology.
1: That's interesting, because looking at it from a parent's perspective, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have got iPads, um, phones, et cetera, where a lot of the time you'll sit the the child down and have an educational game, for example, where the... The kids learning to read to write, and us as parents feel you know they're on the tablets, but they're being educated. Yeah, yeah. What's your what's your, given what you've just said? <laughs> what's your view on that? Because the experience you've talked about is very much an integrated approach, yeah. where they're using tech to really kind of learn and develop. Where this is almost almost a one-way street. What's your view on that approach? Because I, I hands up, I do. I'm sure a lot of the listeners do it. Mm. Well, it's very diff- I think it's very
0: difficult as a parent to distinguish between education and technology that actually leads to learning and education technology that doesn't lead to learning because marketing is very good and engagement can be high in both of those scenarios with kids. So one of the things that I often talk about is this idea that engagement doesn't necessarily equal learning. So you need engagement if you're going to learn in every situation where you're engaged doesn't necessarily mean it's a situation where you are actually learning and if you really want to break that down into you know you're engaged when you're playing Candy Crush on your phone that's highly engaging it grabs your attention and you could do it for hours on end but you don't learn anything by playing Candy Crush on your phone True. and there are some educational games which are more like Candy Crush I would say kids are highly engaged they're doing things they're solving problems but they may not be learning anything Um, on the other hand if you can get the level of challenge right in an educational game, in a piece of learning technology, if it can be, have the right level of friction, the right level of difficulty for the learner, they have to struggle with something, think hard about it, then education technologies really can augment um, and help and help kids to learn. And I think that the re- it's, and again, so, like, first of all, I think that in this stuff, there's a bunch of stuff out there which has been proven to have no effect at all. So, like, for example, Baby Einstein has been proven um, experimentally to have, like, no beneficial effect to the learning of children. So some of the biggest products have ever existed and have made billions of dollars, have not contributed anything to the learning of, of children around the world. So, where possible, as a parent, I would look for something that is research informed, evidence based. Um, if If I want something that's actually leading to learning rather than just babysitting my. Uh, my child there's this thing about something really interesting about um, assistive technologies so some of them are good for our brains some of them are not good for our brains And then it gets a bit back to that point that when you're learning what you need to be doing is laying down the cognitive architecture in your brain by struggling and doing difficult things if you outsource too much of that stuff to a computerized assistant then it's the computer that's doing the heavy lifting and not you and so you don't do the learning. And there's a really interesting experiment that was done. called It's called the paradox of the guided user. Um, it was done by a Belgian psychologist quite recently, about you know five or six years ago. And he gave two groups of people this difficult task to do, like a difficult kind of mathematical sorting task to do online. And in the first condition, people were given... A computerized assistant to help them do it, like little hints, little you know pushes, you know try this, try that. The other condition, people were given no help. They just had to figure it out for themselves. Um, what he found was that at the beginning, the people in the first condition with the computerized help did much better. They like mastered the, the, the game more quickly. The other group struggled at the beginning. They couldn't really work out what was going on, they found it difficult. They didn't do so well interestingly what he then found there in two other things so then when you took away the computer assistant and it got a bit harder what he found was that the people in the first condition that had the computer assistant couldn't do the harder levels they had no idea really how to do the thing they'd just been following these hints in the other condition the people could do the harder level because they had to figure it out for themselves they'd done like this kind of hard work in their brains and they had this Architecture laid down in their brains that meant they could go back to it. Even more interestingly, he then tested them again a few weeks later on the same task, this time with no computer helper. The ones who had the computer helper originally couldn't do the task. They had no memory of how to do it. They'd never worked out how to do it. The ones that had to struggle through it at the beginning, they could still complete this task and do it better than the other ones. So there's this thing that we really have to be careful of with our tech, is that we don't give up too much of our thinking and agency um, and that we also recognise that engagement doesn't necessarily equate to learning.
1: Interesting, so <laughs> it's engagement
0: plus. Engagement plus, you know you have to, you, you can't learn without engagement but you can be engaged and not be learning.
1: Mm. But also it comes back to the point of teaching children how to think not yeah. what to think. Yeah right, right, Which is, which is a big a, point. Which is, a, which is that big point um, which you know I've not got the answer to and <laughs> One other thing I'd like to, to to talk about is the importance of early years education. Yep. This podcast I've, I've made to focus mainly on sort of early years, and yep. before I was reading your book, before starting on this journey myself, I was of the impression that, you know what, early years primary school, that's fine, it's secondary school. Yeah. Secondary school is the big thing, yeah. as long as the secondary school is good, it doesn't really matter about primary school. Yeah. What, what's, what's your view, obviously, given the, the
0: research that you've done? Yes, yeah, so I was just like you when I started out in education. I thought there was a clear hierarchy: University is most important, secondary schools next most important, primary schools the next most important, and early childhood education isn't really important. But then there's some very compelling science. The most compelling stuff is done by an economist called James Heckman, who looks at lots of different early childhood interventions, and he has some. His research is so famous that his cur, he's got this curve. It's called the Heckman curve. And it basically shows that your return on investment in a child's education diminishes exponentially from the moment that they're born to throughout their lives. And so every dollar you spend, you know, on day one is worth a huge amount more than every dollar you spend, you know, in year 18 or year 50 or whatever. And so I think we need to essentially flip how we understand education. The most important years are the earliest years. And at the same time, it's not always obvious what the best way to approach those earliest years is. So, for example, one of the things that exploded, one of the, one of the most famous studies uh, that came out was by these researchers called Hart and Misley. It came out in the 80s. And it resulted in these headlines about this idea of the 30 million word gap. So they studied a bunch of kids, rich kids and poor kids, and found that the richest kids they predicted by the age of three had already heard 30 million more words than the poorest kids on average. Now, people have criticised their methodology, but it still sort of stands. Like If you have just heard a lot more language after three years... You're likely to know many more words. appear to be more intelligent. You've just got a, a big advantage. And what we also know from the education system is that it doesn't close those gaps, but merely exacerbates them. If you turn up at school age four knowing way more words than another child, you're going to be perceived to be much more clever. Be put in the the teacher will then like re you know unconsciously live into that bias. You know treat you as one of the smart ones. Give you the harder things to do, and it'll just kind of keep on being an advantage for you so one thing that we know is that early language is important but this also led to like, all this really spurious um activities happening in early childhood education like flashcards for early reading you know getting kids to listen to the radio like melvin Bragg on in our time but none of this stuff works at all it's not just about words really in fact there's a really interesting experiment which shows um that like little kids can't learn this up to eight up to 15 months i think it is or 18 months a child can't learn from a recording, whether it's a, a television recording or it's a radio recording. They just don't get the idea that that's something that they should pay attention to. They'll only learn from other human beings at that point or from interacting with their environment, which I think is so interesting. Um, so words matter. Language matters. It's it's good to hear lots of words, but you can't sort of just, you know, force kids. That's a, that's a grim early childhood where you're kind of like just reading flashcards to them. But two other things seem to matter a lot one of them is play, basically. So, I went to a place called Penguin Early Childhood Centre. It's in it's in Corby in Northamptonshire, and it's world renowned for being really great at um, early childhood education. It's a, it's a top top place, and there, they take the, the the play of the kids really really seriously. So, like kids playing in a sandpit or kids running around hiding or kids like splashing water or kids dressing up or kids playing with action figures. They see all of these as what they call play schemas, which are demonstrations of behaviors, which can then be led into learning experiences. So if you've got a kid playing in the sandpit with sand or like pouring water into cups, that's an early play schema that hints at a way of connecting it to scientific knowledge or forces. If you see kids playing with action dolls. That's sort of proto storytelling approach, which you could then maybe help them to build on and make more complex stories. Um, and so they have all of these great ways of understanding the importance of play and helping kids get really good at playing. And that also encourages imagination and creativity. And you've got to lay that stuff down early on. So, so language is important. Play is really important. And then thirdly, and perhaps most important is just, it's love and a caring environment so been all sorts of experiments that have have been done that have proven the importance of this throughout our lives so we know for example that trauma if if a mother is experiencing trauma during the moment that she is pregnant with a child then that trauma will leave an imprint on the child into life we know that um Children sort of experience a chemical change in their brains when they're soothed by a caregiver. And these things are the the core foundations of a stable, healthy uh, child that becomes an adult that's able to learn. So I think it's like this combination of most important is like a caring, loving, nurturing environment. It's super important that kids have a chance to play and explore and find out what they love. And then it's also really important for them to hear lots of language, to talk, to express themselves. And those are the building blocks. Um, so there's not a formula to early childhood education. I don't think we're ever gonna to get to the stage where you're putting your kids through a three-year development plan that has daily goals for what they're doing, although you can see it emerging in some places in a way. Um, but it's just getting kind of the rich mix of this stuff right. You know, we've, we're literally a species of, of teachers and students and we've been doing this stuff for millions of years, quite successfully so far. So I don't think we want to overcomplicate it at the same time um, as recognizing that there is science that can help us with pointers.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. So it's quite interesting because obviously from a from a school perspective, primary school, you've got reception, which is quite playful, but then yeah. very quickly mm. we get away from that. Yeah. Um, very quickly. Um, if what I'm hearing is correct, and I guess one way potentially parents can, I guess, help their children is perhaps to counter that structure that they find in a lot of schools is perhaps be a little bit less structured which I know for a lot of listeners will probably be uh, sound terrifying <laughs> but 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 from what I'm hearing is that we, kids really do need that balance of, of being able to express themselves of being able to play being able to be a bit messy yeah um, to not necessarily have everything in a box yeah to not necessarily know everything um, and I know I said some some parents may be listening thinking <laughs> that's not right but <laughs> well, um, it depends who you
0: want your kids to become if you want your kids to be creative. There's a really interesting US study that found that the most creative teenagers didn't come from the homes where the parents were most creative. So where the parents were doing classic creative things like being artists or musicians or what have you. The most creative kids came from the homes that encouraged independence the most. So in fact, there was a direct correlation between the number of rules at home and how creative you were. So the fewer the rules that were that they had at home, the more creative the children. So there's like a direct relationship between the freedom that's
1: given to kids and how creative they become in the long run. So so let's talk about that for a second because that as a, as a parent <laughs> <laughs> will make some people start to twitch. <laughs> uh, how do you balance that? And I think, okay, yeah. okay in terms of parents, guardians listening today, what, how would you balance that in terms of the need for fewer rules? But then they're kids, so they, they do need some structure. Of course, yeah, How, yeah. how, would, you, I mean, how would you advise some listeners today in the, how they'd go about really kind of implementing a structure of creativity?
0: <laughs> yeah. So I also went to the MIT Media Lab, and there mm-hmm. they had this big hacking culture. And of course, you can only become a hacker if there's something to hack in the first place. So you can only become a rule-breaker if you've got rules to break. So I think that you always need some kind of rules to push against. If you have a structureless environment, then that is just as harmful to creativity, I think, as one with too much structure. So it's about getting the balance right. And again, there's no perfect balance. It depends like what your values are. Education is such a complex thing. Um, But I would say to think about the situation's where structure is positive helpful and valuable and those where it might be better to allow the freedom that kids could have like give me an example you know you might not have want to make any moves on what time bedtime is or the fact you're going to have to go to school like these are things that you can't really be make choices about as a child because you know we want to have structures and systems that we live by and I think that's right but you might be able to give kids a choice about what it is they want to do before they go to bed. They want to read a story, you right. a thing, what story, like how do you bring that kind of choice in? You might give them limited choices about what foods they want to eat or like what role they want to play in, you know, family meal times. I think that the activi- the kinds of activities that they want to spend their time doing, maybe you don't give them an option of doing no activities at all, but you can give them a choice of the different things they might be into. So I think it's about, you know, managing the extent of the freedom that kids have. And also, you know, if kids transgress rules, then about having not only incentives not to or punishments for doing so, but also allowing those to be learning experiences for kids. Like, we've talked a lot about critical thinking. If you want your kids to be real critical thinkers, then you might encourage them to question every rule that you give them, everything that you tell them, and of course, that, there's an element to that which would be nightmarish. Um, and kids are already very capable of questioning all those things themselves anyway. Like this again, like telling, not telling kids what to think, but how to think. I think you want to get to a situation where you're not having too frequently to say, like, you know, where a kid says why, you're saying because I say so. Like that feels mm. like, you, you know, you're failing somewhat then in, in creating it as a learning experience or... Having a rule that makes sense to them, like allow them to know why the rules exist and sort of feel
1: invested in them, I guess. Brilliant. Okay, well, that makes sense. <laughs> wow, the time's going. One I thing I, I do want to touch on, uh, which I, wish I read from the book, is your experience in Finland. Yeah. Um, I find that really fascinating. I wouldn't mind if you just touch on that. Yeah. Of of what you of found, and, and perhaps what lessons we could we could take from that. Yeah. So,
0: I essentially went to Finland to see how we could build healthier more creative happier societies and one of the places I went to was a class in of the country's most famous teacher he's a guy called Pekka Peora and at the start of his class he was was a class of 16 year old kids so they're a little bit older but what he did I think applies in lots of different settings so I went to finish primary schools as well and they're amazing places of joy and freedom, like woodwork class. Kids are sort of hacking away at things with saws. No one's mm-hmm. concerned for them. I saw one lesson actually where the teacher just sent these little six and seven-year-old kids running off into the woods to just go by themselves for an hour, collect leaves and do all these kinds of things. Stuff that I don't think we would be so comfortable doing in the UK mm-hmm. anymore. And, you know, Kids there still walk home from school alone, age five or six let themselves into their house, look after themselves for a few hours while their parents are at work. That's completely normal culturally in Finland. So it's, it's a different setting, I should say. But in this class, he basically, he started by putting this question on the interactive whiteboard and then got kids to use their smartphones to beam in answers A, B, C, D or E. They beamed them in. He displayed their answers in a bar chart on the board. And then he didn't tell them the answer. Instead, he asked them to turn and talk to each other in these table groups that they were in. And... They talked for a bit. And then he asked them to beam in their answers for a second time. And, he, and again, he displayed their answers in a bar chart. And the bar chart looked very different to how it looked before. The kids had basically taught he, each other. And when I spoke to him afterwards, he told me that he saw his role as a teacher as one of giving kids the knowledge and skills that they needed to learn things for themselves. And so at the beginning of the term, he would give them all the materials they needed, all of the textbooks and online resources and all of the tests, all of the answers to all of the tests. And he would sort of expect them to work through that at their own pace. And what he was interested in was coaching them. So he'd studied how Google creates its successful teams, and he learned that it was all about trust. And he was using the principles of that to guide the practice in his classroom. So he would coach the kids individually and together in their groups on their abilities as learners. Like how, are they, how are they growing their perseverance? How are they growing their critical thinking? How are they growing their creativity or their ability to work together in teams? Um, And even at the end of the year, he would actually get them to choose their own grades to enter into the system. Because he was so confident that that wasn't the bit that really mattered in the learning process. And coming from the UK system, my first question to him afterwards was, so, you know, what do you do if kids are falling behind in this model? And he said, you know, what is this idea of behind? We need to delete this concept of competition from education entirely entirely. Uh, and instead allow kids to feel comfortable failing in small ways at all times that's how they're going to learn and, and, what, and it works and I think it works because it's Finland so Finland has also like, got a very particular context Finnish people love education so there are 10 applicants for every one place on Finnish primary teacher training programs Is the most competitive Job that you can try and get into is to become a primary school teacher in Finland. Really? Wow. Yeah. They also, if there's a good statistic that you know they did this national survey and you ask somebody what their the job of the job of their ideal partner, um, women say first doctor, second primary school teacher, and then men say first primary school teacher. So it's like a top profession. People would love to be married to a primary school teacher. In that is, com- I'd
1: imagine that's completely the opposite here and I yeah, guess no, it I'm sure it's the same. Yeah. goes to show just yeah. the the focus yeah um that and yeah the focus that people put on teaching and, and rightly so I mean yeah they're, they're bringing up the next generation of prime ministers technologists scientists as, as well exactly
0: you know teaching I mean whatever you think about the future when you think it's going to be a future of climate change or it's a future of a new economy or it's automation or it's growing inequality whatever happens we need to be smarter more empathetic, better equipped, better able to work together. And the only way we're going to be, be any of those things is if we have like amazing teachers in our classrooms right now equipping us with all of those abilities. And they're doing it well in Finland, even if they're not doing it well everywhere else. Um, and so one of the other things they do really well there is their early childhood education in Finland is very interesting. So kids don't go to primary school until the year of their seventh birthday. So primary school doesn't really start until you're six or seven in Finland. And prior to that, parents are specifically told not to teach their kids how to read. So you don't learn to read until you're six or seven. And there's actually been a really interesting study that was done uh, by a team of researchers in New Zealand, which looked at groups of kids, some of whom learned to read from the age of four and some of whom learned to read from the age of seven. And they found that by the time those groups of kids reached the age of 15, they were equally good at reading as one another so had it hadn't made a difference whether they started at four or seven the only difference was the kids that had started at four liked reading less than the kids who had started at seven they didn't enjoy it as much like something about having had to learn it earlier on in their in their lives meant that they saw it as more of a chore than something to be enjoyed and in Finland they're not getting that wrong so Finnish early um, childhood education kindergartens are wonderful places with highly qualified um, teachers in them who know exactly how to cultivate those habits of play and to create that nurturing environment and to develop those kids um, with their language and love of language and still by many measures Finland makes more of its people than any other country in the world so it's, it comes top of the World Economic Forum's Human Capital Index for developing the productivity of its people. According to a UN survey last year, it's the happiest country in the world as well. And it's also a country that is a hive of creativity. So they've got companies there like uh, Nokia, which they created. Angry Birds is a Finnish company. They've also... Finnish kids have invented some crazy sports like this. this thing called hobby horsing which is an imaginary form of show jumping where kids go round show jumping arenas but running with m- m- wooden model horses between their legs and jumping over the jumps themselves. Sounds a bit
1: Harry Potter. <laughs>
0: it's a bit Harry Potter and it's also the country with the highest proportion of heavy metal bands to population of anywhere in the world and the teacher that I went to visit Pekepeora was actually a
1: drummer in one of these bands. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. This is Absolutely fascinating. Actually, you know, I, I, could, we could, I could talk for, for hours and hours. Uh, we already talked for over an hour already. And a couple of final things. To parents, if you had to give us a final word for parents in terms of final words of advice, tips,
0: yep. what would it be? So first of all, I'm not a parent yet. And so take these bits of advice with that pinch of salt. First of all, I would say to every parent that... We've been doing this for millions of years. You're literally, you know, born to do this. So, you know, trust your instincts and do what feels right would be the first thing. The second would be to think about all of those things that you can do to help your child to be someone that loves learning. So it's it's the stuff from early childhood education. So creating a caring, nurturing environment in which that child feels safe to be themselves, take risks creating an environment in which they have an opportunity to play. And that means also to experiment with all the things that they might fall in love with, to try different things out where they do have an interest and to support them in that interest, to help them to develop it. And then thirdly, you know, to set them up for success at school by helping them to develop their language, how to express themselves, to learn not to love reading, but to learn to love stories and storytelling and to understand why one day it might be interesting to be able to read because stories are so meaningful to you. So I think all of those things um, are really important. And then I would say to parents who have got kids in school that one of the best things that you can do is to get to know and learn how to support the teachers of your children. The places that I saw around the world where kids are doing best, the one thing that they had in common was a sense of shared responsibility between the students, the parents and the teachers for the success of those children. Nobody was blaming each other or trying to pass the buck or saying it was this person's responsibility or that person's. They all had a real sense of a shared endeavour they were all in it for the success of the kid the kid was taking responsibility so was the parent so was the teacher and if you can build that kind of connection with the schools where your children are studying then i think that's probably the most revolutionary thing we can do to improve education in the uk right now
1: brilliant thank you so much alex <laughs> thank you um, if uh, listeners want to find out a bit more about you what, how can how can they do that
0: listeners can find out more about me by visiting my website it's probably the best thing alexbeard.org and there. I post uh, latest articles I've been writing, any projects I'm working on with the radio or media speaking engagements that I have coming up. I've also got social media buttons on there, so you can send me an email if you want to link me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. It's all there. So go to the website, first of all, and take it from there.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Alec. But before we part... (sighs) One thing I've noticed on your website yeah. there's a picture of you, and you're wearing a T-shirt. Yes, this is probably one for another podcast, <laughs> but it's something that I find extremely fascinating. On that T-shirt, it says "Raise boys and girls the same way." Um, what do you mean by that? Obviously, I know what it means, but w- why? Why that? You, you, there's obviously something in that. There's something in that. I
0: think that we live in a world where we put different pressures and expectations on kids, depending on whether they're girls or boys. And if you want to uh, to characterise that really roughly, you'd say that we ask girls to be perfectionists, to behave themselves, to look after their families. We let boys be ruffians who take risks, get their hands dirty. We say that boys are good at maths and girls are good at English. Um... And I think that this creates unfair and unrealistic and unnecessary expectations on girls and boys that harms their prospects of developing their full potential, stops boys from developing their emotional lives, stops girls from taking risks and feeling comfortable with failure. And so when I say raise boys and girls the same way, what I mean is we should treat all kids In the same way, and we shouldn't have these expectations of them based on gender, because I think it's suppressing a huge amount of potential um, that could be unleashed in our societies if we did it differently.
1: Brilliant, thank you. As I said, that's for that's one for another (laughs) podcast. That's a whole series, I think. Brilliant, Uh, thank you very much again, Alex. Cheers. (laughs) Thanks, John. Remember, you can subscribe for free to get notifications whenever a new episode is released. You can also get in touch by email on lessons outside at gmail.com